0: Two geeks and a marketing podcast, episode 48, the one about remote working, six questions that build a story and 10 Cloverfield Lane. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date on the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. The host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast, please welcome Mr.
1: Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And what a pleasure it is to spend more time with a man who's also on a mission, this time to keep marketing simple. The voice. The marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Rock Club video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards.
0: Oh thank you so much Pascal and here we are with episode, wait for it, episode 48. So we are definitely steaming straight into episode 50 territory and it'll only be a couple of weeks before we get there and we will be telling you very soon what we're going to be doing to celebrate that milestone. But we're not quite there yet so we've got to Fire on and get through this one. So, Pascal, shall we go straight into the news?
1: According to the 2021 Cantar Brands Ranking, Amazon has retained its crown at the world's most valuable brand for the third year in a row. Apple is second, Google third, and Microsoft fourth. And the ad industry
0: is urging the government to reconsider its decision to ban advertising of high-fat sugar and salt products online and on TV prior to 9pm, a move expected to cost broadcasters more than £200 million a year in revenue.
1: Well, Google has backtracked on its plan to ban third-party cookies on its Chrome browser after meeting opposition from UK regulators. The search giant will now not phase out cookies until the end of 2023. Audi Denmark
0: claims a 70% conversion rate for cookieless test leveraging advertising using exclusion lists, which perhaps suggests that the loss of cookies isn't going to be such
1: a bad thing. And marketing with columnist Mark Ritson recently scooped the prestigious Columnist of the Year award at the PPA Awards 2021. Secret Cinema has partnered with Netflix to hold a Bridgerton Ball in November. The three
0: hour immersive experience will revolve around a virtual ballroom with dance classes, life, drawing, and period specific games, and a string quartet
1: playing reimagined pop songs. Wow, well, listen to this. Budweiser released a digital game, Go Forth America, that recreates Bill Pulsman's iconic speech in the 1996 blockbuster Independence Day. This one is encouraging people to get vaccinated instead of preparing to combat aliens, of course.
0: And news platform Euronews is seeking to grow its UK audience with a new Feel Connected to Europe campaign, launched to mark the fifth anniversary of the referendum that saw the UK choose to leave the EU. Wow. So, Pascal, once again, some really quite interesting news items. I I had to include Mark Ritson in the news this um, week. i pleased you did. Uh, because, I've, of course, I've used him as one of my content uh, spotlights many times in the show over the last 48 episodes. And the fact that he's won this award, I just thought it needed to be shouted out. He's not everybody's cup of tea. A lot of digital marketers disagree with what he says because he slags them off quite a lot. Uh, but he's always to the point. He's always uses a lot of research
1: in what he's doing. And he, I, I, I find him to be a bit of a breath of fresh air, to be honest. Now I would agree. I actually looked at the uh, the website to see if there was uh, things you could uh, kind of consult. to begin with. It's quite a, a extensive competition. I mean, the categories there there are quite a few, and Mark was against another seven shortlisted candidates, all very very obviously good in their own rights. But um, it felt, like I said, you've chosen Mark. Written often for the in the news, even content spotlight. So no, I think it's gone full circle. Well done, you. <laughs> And I just wondered what you thought about this issue with the
0: government effectively banning the advertising of high-fat sugar and salt products. I think, you know, yes, we've banned tobacco advertising, cigarette advertising, cigar advertising on TV for many, many years now, and, and nobody seemed to too concerned with that but there was always that sort of glimmer of nanny state wasn't there and I just wonder whether this is just going too far I mean we're all adults aren't we can we not make the choice ourselves?
1: Yeah, but the government is, re- is reacting to data from the wow. health sector and it's just not working, whatever else they've been trying in terms of campaigns and the five a day and, you know, move more and that kind of things. And I think more importantly, with a year and three months of people being more sed- sedentary and being at home, I think the figures will have increased. What I will point out, just as a little, um kind of jab at the jibe at the, um, the the press last week when we reported this the value would was 600 million pounds a year in revenue <laughs> and it's now gone down to 200 so maybe you know things are assigned to settle more my concern would be that the the brands that are essentially targeted we know who they are can still promote themselves but what they can't do is show the products. So, yeah. is it really a part of the, the solution t- to your point? Or is it just that they'll be vexed, but they could still say, hey, we exist and we are amazing at customer service and people will still buy from them? My challenge, sorry to inter- interrupt you there, Roger, my challenge is that uh, because of my lifestyle, I don't understand or I don't appreciate the correlation between seeing a burger on TV and wanting to buy one. I just think that if you like burgers a lot, you're going to go and buy them no matter the advertising.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And are we actually trying to solve the wrong problem here? Is it the, f- is the problem that we're advertising high fat, sugar and salt products? Or is it the fact that we have high, sh- high fat, sugar and salt pro- products? Shouldn't these manufacturers be told, lower the fat, lower the sugar and lower the salt? Mm. And then, you would, then they would be healthier and then we would be able
1: to advertise them and presumably
0: everybody would be happier, wouldn't
1: they? Well, that's what they've been trying to do for, it feels like it's um, conversation has been going on for decades because on one hand they say reduce the salt. They say, well, people like salt. Reduce the salt. It costs money. And this is back and forth between regulators and and manufacturers. Uh, I know that things have have improved somewhat, but clearly the UK government, but also across Europe, they are very concerned about the, the fact that the body, is not able clearly to deal with this high content of fat, sugar, and salt.
0: Yeah, yeah. So thinking about
1: Bridgerton, now
0: I know that you don't. You're not a Netflix person. I am you, Pascal? not. So, you won't have seen Bridgerton, but you might have heard mm-hmm. of Bridgerton. It was the sort of uh, rom com set in the past, so sort of Regency England, a uh, v- big costume dra- drama, very well produced, a little bit cheesy, quite a lot of sex, um, and obviously a massive, massive hit. Uh, there's a second series coming, I believe, and no doubt that, that will be just as big a hit. But this secret cinema uh, initiative with the, the virtual ballroom sounds really quite interesting and innovative to me.
1: And can I just check, the, because for me, the campaign that they're doing, which I would agree is a multifaceted and, and very innovative, it feels as though it should attract a younger audience. They're quite net savvy and I'm making obviously the link between Bridgerton and what you described to an older audience so uh, have they actually successfully attracted the younger audiences back to the the subject matter and, and the time?
0: It's a very interesting question I mean a lot of the characters in Bridgerton are are young characters um, albeit dressed in period costumes and, and wandering around period uh, Uh, london uh but i i I think that they they've made it in such a way that it definitely would be attractive to young people and i guess that this campaign will will build upon that i imagine that the string quartet playing reimagined pop songs it won't be reimagined pop songs from our era era of the 1980s i guess it'll be reimagined pop songs from (laughs) the noughties
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to quickly mention because uh, it's appeared in the news quite a bit, you know, about this Google thing and the cookies and some more about food, really. So when you look into it, the Internet is trying to be safer and more private. Whether that is search engine and social media. And we, and we can discuss you now whether or not they are being successful. So, when the news was first announced by Google, that's what we're doing. The reaction was initially, oh, good on you. Thank you very much for helping make the internet safer and more private. But then, when people looked into the details, what Google are offering is to ban everybody else's cookies apart from theirs. Mm. <laughs> that's yeah. why the UK regulators are not happy.
0: Indeed. And, and again, it's it's a bit like going back to what we were saying about the food, isn't it? The problem isn't that there's advertising of the high fat, high sugar, high salt. It's the fact that there are those products that exist. And this is the same issue, isn't it? Is it really fair for Google to take this position when really what it's doing is it's, it's lining its own pockets by making it more difficult for everybody else mm. to do advertising? So there, there is a, a major smattering of hypocrisy there, I think. Absolutely. So Pascal I think we should probably move on and the next section of the show is always a favourite. Let's move on to content spotlights. In this section of the show Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. It could be a video, it could be a blog, it could be a bigger article in a news magazine and we effectively look at that piece of content and discuss its merits. So Pascal, what have you got for me this week?
1: So this week I've got a video for you and I've Mm. gone back if memory serves i've mentioned filmcourage.com before in content spotlights. as a reminder this is a uh, initiative a movement you could argue to help people be better screenwriters better film producers but the lessons for content creators in a business world are very relevant filmcourage.com should be approaching the 10th anniversary the co-founders are karen warden and david branin and this video has the following title if you can't answer these six questions you don't have a story and the interviewee was glenn gears who had 25 years experience as a screenwriter for tv movie and play stage and i am a sucker for anything to do with storytelling Uh, I, i never tire of hearing someone's perception and position on it because i just think that it is at their heart to be able to write a good press release all the way to writing a hollywood blockbuster now, what is interesting about Glenn Gears is he's just a very kind of natural guy. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing kind of jargony. You just explain plainly, which I think is heart of telling a good story, and simply what it means to have a story that engages. So I'm going to give you quickly his definition of a story, then move on to the six questions and get your reaction. But something tells me that uh, you're going to thoroughly enjoy this uh, this summary. So for Glenn, story is about someone that we can relate to. You don't have to like them, you can relate to them. That is trying to accomplish something and their efforts are either helped along or hindered by others and their interaction or reaction to those obstacles is at the heart of any stories. So what he's saying is, you know, in the video you'll, you'll hit when you watch it, the, um, someone just wants to board a train, but if they just go from the car, as you would perhaps sometime, Roger, to the platform, to the train, then get to their destinations, there's just no story. There was no interaction, even with maybe the, you know, the staff working at the station, maybe there was no obstacle. Has he or has she forgot their suitcase in, in the car? You know, you've got all the kind of things into it, into it. So, really, a story becomes interesting before you even know what a story is when there's something that potentially is getting in the way or something that is helping along. And we enjoy observing how those relatable, but perhaps not likable characters react with those obstacles or with those champions helping them along. So I thought that was just an interesting reminder. I just love them. So in terms of the writing process, whether once again it's a press release or a case study or an award-winning TV series, it is about you in advance answering a number of questions, jotting down some notes, and then expanding upon. And you've got to find, of course, your own writing process and the video should spend some time on that. But start with an overall vision, of course, of the story. Then ask yourself this question. Who is it about? What do they want? Why can't they get it? And what do they do about it that they haven't done before? Why is it not working? And how does it end? It's all, that's all. These are the six questions you've got to answer. Put them on a piece of paper and jot down some answers. And here's the thing, each time you come up with an answer, If you want to expand and flesh out the story, just answer the question, why? So if you ask, who is it about? And you describe a person. Then ask yourself the question, why are they who they are? Why do they have this profession? What has happened in the past? What's happening in the future? What what do they want? But why do they want it? Why can't they get it? And you can really start to flesh out. You can do a mind map. You can do post-its. You can do what you want. And literally, what he was saying is that by answering those six questions, Roger, it fit in a one-act story structure, three, which is my favorite, as you know, or even five, seven, 21, uh, story structure. I just think it's just a wonderful reminder, a one that I made me smile when I was w- listening to it, because once again, I just enjoy hearing about storytelling.
0: This is fantastic. And, and you know, you know that I'm a massive fan of stories as well. And, uh, you know, th- we talk about films and all the stories within those. But storytelling is so powerful in marketing and and storytelling is so powerful in business. And actually this week I was reminded of this whole thing. it's a little bit uh, insurance just for a moment, but there was an article in the Sunday Times last weekend which was slagging off life insurance. Now, a lot of people find life insurance intolerably dull anyway, but this article was really badly written. It was it was basically saying, never ever buy it, and that's a not a good thing because you know people need to have that sort of insurance, especially if they've got a mortgage or big outgoings. And there was quite a great big sort of response to this in the financial services community. And one guy um, actually said stories are the way to overcome this sort of article, we just need to tell stories about people who've had payments and, and, and have been saved financially. And this reminded me of an article that I wrote, Pascal, and this was 10 years ago. And it's one of the very first blogs I ever wrote on my own website. So I went back, took me a while to find it, actually. I've done so many posts since then. And I reposted it and then effectively uh, associated it with this guy who said stories are the way to do it. And this this blog post has just gone Ballistic again, <laughs> um you know, and the people. Oh, this is just an amazing story, and 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 it, it's one of those stories that can actually make people cry, and 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 it's come back. And there you have it: the power of story Something that I did ten years ago. The story is so powerful; it's still relevant ten years later, and and that just goes to show. And if I went through, and I'm not going to because we haven't got time. But if I went through those six questions. In that story that I posted ten years ago, I'm probably sure that all of those six questions would have been included within that.
1: Oh, Oh, indeed, and I'm very aware that in some circles, in in kind of industry and business. The moment you use the term storytelling, you know people start rolling their eyes. It's a bit like yes, using the term yes. Um, authentic. You know? <laughs> so, yes. know <laughs> oh, But please understand, you know, the term storytelling is just a label for actually what I've just described a, a moment ago. And as I, uh, you know, said, you can with these questions, you can write a movie, a video game, a series, a press release, a case study. You can plan a course. Potentially, you know, it's just wonderful and. And more importantly, these are the kind of questions and and the system that's been around for a very long time, which is why it can be trusted.
0: Fantastic. So, Pascal, shall I tell you about my content spotlight? Please, yes. Uh, This is actually... A mainstream media article, which may be the first time that I've actually done this. So this is an, (laughs) this is an article that appeared in the Guardian on the Guardian newspaper website. The heading is the problem isn't remote working, it's clinging to office-based practices by Alexia Gambon at the the, the Guardian newspaper. And this 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 caught my eye because a lot of people obviously are talking about the new normal, which is another big cliche, isn't it? As we move out of lockdown, people have become Comfortable with working from home, those of us who can, and don't want to face the prospect of having to go back to the commute to the office every day. And, you know, those people in London who used to put up with, you know, hours of commuting each day on crowded and very expensive trains and staring into somebody's armpit on the tube train every day, just, just misery. And you can understand why they don't want to go back to this. And, and it would appear that business is going to accommodate that and you hear talk of well you know you may only have to go into the office one day a week or a couple of days a week and you can work from home fine because we've got used to it using zoom and teams during the lockdown but this article digs a little bit deeper into this and saying it's all very well saying let's allow this remote working and flexibility to continue but what Alexia is doing in this article is actually challenging the entire office-based philosophy the the methodology and saying it's not that's not enough because if you think about it the, the the term remote working suggests that going to the office is the actual Done thing, and that everybody should go to the office. And what she's saying is, hasn't the pandemic shown us that actually we might not need offices at all? And therefore, remote working is a misnomer because it might not be remote working. And so, what she does is she goes through only three things that really hark back way into history to prove to me and others that actually this whole way that we've been working has been exposed by the pandemic to be completely hopeless. So the first thing is, you know, the office, based in a big city, very expensive rents and rates and all of that sort of thing, and the needless backwards and forwards and expensive commuting. And, you know, why do we do that? Well, that's because back in time, the they wanted workers to be in an area that they could be controlled and that man they could be managed. It maybe even goes way back to you know, Henry Ford and his uh, car production lines. And the the nine to five philosophy of the office is just, non- is just nonsense. If you are virtual, then it doesn't need to be nine to five. It could be whatever hours you need to put in. Um, and give people the flexibility and and should it become more about the results as opposed to the time. So yeah, you can sit in your desk and stare into space from nine to five and not actually produce anything. And she also challenges the whole meeting culture. You know, the fact that we go into all of these meetings in meeting rooms day in, day out, that create other meetings, that create other meetings. And really the pandemic has just perpetuated that whole thing virtually. And I talked to a few of my friends who work in big corporates still, and they're saying that they are attending 50% more meetings than they used to do when they were actually going into the office because it's made it easier to have even more pointless meetings. So what Alexia is saying is, A, challenge the fact that you need an office at all. Secondly, challenge the fact that we should work nine to five, and third, try to move on from this whole meeting-based philosophy. And she ends the article by saying, look, imagine that we didn't have offices nine to five and meetings, and we genuinely had the ability to recreate work from scratch. What would it look like? Because at the moment, we're just effectively
1: virtualizing something that actually wasn't working
0: in the first place.
1: Fascinating, you know, just taking your last sentence, take something that exists in a physical world and just do a virtual version, takes me back to the early years of websites. You know what people say, Mm -hmm. well, I've got a brochure, printed brochure, let's <laughs> yes. do the same online as opposed to actually imagining all the things that you could do in addition to, you know, and, and for me, it all begins with language. I'm getting a little concerned with this term of hybrid, as you know, we mentioned that last week. I saw an article on LinkedIn talking about the third workspace whereby... <laughs> Essentially, you've got the office, you've got home and then you've got something else suggesting that it's third in line as opposed to you know she've so got all that. So I think she's definitely definitely uh, hitting the, the right mood because I spent what three, four years of my life, my early career as a marketer to commute to London an hour and a half each way train, standing up all the way, even though I paid you know, full ticket, then bus and then tube and whatever. And I just couldn't do it again and I have complete sympathy for doing it. But then I remember when people would open business centers in other part of the UK, but they would still need to have an, an address in London because that's where the meetings took place. And also people say, well, if you we don't have the London address, we're not going to be as trusted as if we have a Manchester or Newcastle or Edinburgh address. And I'm hoping that this has gone by the by. But then we still have, as you say, historically, where people work in factories and therefore you have to descend en masse to that venue. And I think when we moved to manufacturers to the service industry, we, re- we retain this habit of descending en masse towards a big venue, big building, and taking our place at the computer instead of the um, operating machines. And she's right to challenge coming on to, hasn't, you know, the year and a bit that we've spent been the ultimate experiment and the ultimate way to gather evidence that there are different ways. And if you think about it, the software developer community has proven that you know you have multinational teams working in different parts of the globe and they use online to meet but then to get on with a project and accomplish great results for their clients but they, they don't have an office to go to
0: yeah Absolutely. So it'd be really interesting to get your views on this. Listeners and viewers of Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast, are you heading back to the office now? Are you going back to the way it was? Let us know what you think. Either give us a comment on the on the YouTube video or it's Look us up on uh, on Twitter, and and tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of this whole remote in inverted commas working debate. So, Alexia, thank you so much for that article in the Guardian newspaper. Really did make me think. Pascal, I think we should move on now and talk about marketing tech and apps. Well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I review. Apps that we've come across, platforms that we've come across, technology that will help us do our jobs better. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week?
1: So, this week it's all about a research project. I kind of gave myself uh, auto commissioned, you know, an investigation around audio live streaming. Now you'll know we've spoken about Twitter Spaces, you'll have plans. I've looked into the Spotify and Green Room. We know that the alleged Facebook audio room is now a reality being rolled out in the US, and we know enough that LinkedIn is bound to do something uh, of the same ilk. So I've been thinking, and I've been kind of almost practicing what I preach about planning, about researching, about business casing it, saying, well, w- what is the benefits of audio live streaming? And if I was to go ahead, in what format? And I realized that there were some shortcomings of the options given to us, albeit we shouldn't complain because Roger is free of charge. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. But Twitter Spaces, you know, Spotify Green Room and the others, I'm seeing something in the realms of, so you go live once, and then it's over. People can't find the audio recording within the platforms to play again because it's gone and you can't find a way to share it, you can't find a way to repurpose it. Now, some say you will be able to get um, access to an audio recording, but we don't know yet the quality of that recording. I'm thinking, so is there something else? Or is there something that I could use in addition to all that? And through, frankly, using Google, I was reminded of one platform and discovered a new one that has essentially the audio live streaming as an option that gives you a bit more control. So the first one is called MixLR, M-I-X and then L-R, and, and I've got the hyperlink in, in the show notes. I want you to think of a um, almost like a podcasting platform, but you can have more control in and around creating a live experience. So You can use it from desktop or mobile phones. You could be at an event and actually start an audio live streaming. You will have a dedicated page on MixLR that you can share the hyperlink to, but which is where, for me, is more interesting. You can also embed the player for people to listen live or listen on a replay on your own website. And now we start to go back to what I'm more comfortable with in terms of uh, content marketing and building your reputation. So you can promote, obviously, the live session in advance. Set reminders. People can download, obviously, the hyperlink and so on. And you can choose to make it public or private. And you can also add pre-recorded content, such as, for example, Roger Music. So you could have your intro music. You could have some stings. You could have some pre-recorded adverts. You could even add as part of your kind of deliberation. Uh, content from another speaker of an advert from tv whatever you need to really make this a great live experience now mixalove from what i can gather would allow you to create more of a solo show which is fine now if you want to have guests co-hosts even listeners that can jump in the call and talk to you they may want to look into Podbean have a live stream version. Now, I must confess, Roger, I thought Podbean was just for podcasting as we understand it. And I've never bothered beyond knowing that it exists amongst all the others. But as part of my research, I discovered that they've had the live streaming function for quite some time, in fact. So all the things I've listed with uh, MixLR exist, But then this is where you can invite co-hosts, so you can have essentially more than one person delivering the presentation live to your audience. But you can also have listeners that can jump into the call, almost like a radio show. And they also have this lovely feature where people can give you virtual gifts if they appreciate all the hard work you put in. And again, you have the player, which can be embedded. Of course, because Podbin is a podcast uh, platform, you will have a recording that you can share on. And I've been wondering whether you know, and in a way Twitter spaces and Spotify and Green Room they have almost a particular use case but with its limitations and if all your live streaming is really is for you, then you know Mixlr and Podbin could be the option. And for people that are still not sure what this could look like, I want you to imagine using YouTube for live video, which is an option as opposed to pre-recorded content that you then upload on YouTube. This is essentially the, the difference.
0: Yeah, this whole uh, audio thing's really interesting, isn't it? Over the last few days, I've heard a few gurus saying (laughs) that social audio is going to be the next big thing, is going to be massive. You know, Clubhouse, as you've mentioned, Twitter Spaces, Spotify, Green Room, all of that, it's just going to go all gel together and become gigantic. And it just makes me I've always been a massive fan of audio, as you know, why I've done I've done the past podcast for so long and why I was so keen to, to work with you on this one. Um, but it wasn't long ago that people were saying that by 2021, 90% of content or 80% of content that we consume will be video. Whereas now everybody seems to be saying, no, 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 it's actually going to be audio. So, yeah, very interesting to see where this whole
1: audio versus video is
0: actually going to go.
1: Quite, no, absolutely. So I'm going to continue the research. If I come across other apps and other solutions for audio live streaming, I shall share them with you. But what wonders have you found on the interweb, Roger?
0: Well, this is a bit random, actually, this week, (laughs) because I haven't got a theme like you have. Now, In Edinburgh, this week, we have the opening of the St. James Quarter, which is this gigantic shopping, entertainment, hospitality, and retail complex. It's been being built for five years, um, and, and it's taken longer because of the pandemic, for obvious reasons. And they originally demolished this horrible 1960s blot on the landscape, concrete monstrosity that was there before and they've turned it into actually something that really fits in quite nicely with the architectural style of edinburgh except right in the middle is this um, building which is ultimately going to open as a w hotel but the 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 architectural name for this building is the golden ribbon and it sits in the middle of this development and it and it effectively is now a new landmark on the uh, the city skyline of edinburgh and obviously this thing has gone down very marmite with people people tend to either utterly hate it or really quite like it and people say it looks like the poo emoji mm. in fact i've heard people call it the golden turd am i allowed to say that on the podcast um and other such uh, such uh, derogatory terms but I've done a vlog about this building, and I was editing it um, over the last couple of days, and I realised that I needed the poo emoji to put it into the video. <laughs> I mean, such is the life that we lead here—the excitement that we uh, that we um, have in our uh, our content creating lifestyles—and so, of course, I had to go and look for a decent file of the emoji, the poo emoji. Could we ask what such term you use on Google for that? (laughs) Uh, Poo emoji, actually. (laughs) Um, And I think I actually said, poo emoji for Premiere Pro, I think I actually typed in. Uh, And I came across this website called Emoji Island. And would you believe it? But every single emoji that you can have on your iPhone, on your Android, whatever it is, and there's hundreds of them now, You can download for free the ping file for these emojis. So, I've got the poo emoji, but I also ended up downloading the, the thinking face and the, the roll eyes and all of that sort of thing. Now, they do make their money by selling vector files for these emojis as well. And I think you paid $2.95 for the vector file. And obviously, mm-hmm. the vector file gives you more um, creativity and you, you can take make it bigger or smaller without losing any of the definition. But just for a very brief pop-up on the screen of the poo emoji, I was quite pleased with Emote, finding emoji island and and the second piece of uh, tech is totally unrelated um and i just came across i've heard about this before but this is the first time i actually came across the actual app on on the um on the the app store and it's called one second in fact the website is onese.co, and it's a one second a day video diary And that's literally what you do. You're only allowed to take one second of video every day. And this app stitches it all together and makes a continuously growing in length film of all these seconds of your life. And if you actually look into it, there are some people who, believe it or not, have been using this app for nearly a decade now. And looking at some of the videos that have been posted, it's really, really quite fascinating. It's you know that such a quick glimpse, but you suck in so much um, of the experience of people. And and actually looking at them, I'm sort of thinking, wow, I'd love to have done this for the last ten years to actually see what my, how you know all the instantaneous snapshots of the life. It's it's, it's just slightly different to. Photos, isn't it? It's just a second of video. So there's always a bit of, mo- of movement always a little bit of zooming in zooming out real life I just think it's absolutely fascinating. So I may well be starting to do
1: a second a day video diary myself Oh, I'm very tempted to Roger um, Interestingly when I began my journey to discover whether or not filmmaking was for me I attended, as you can imagine, a lot of film courses and film festivals. And one of the festivals, a guy recorded a year of his life with five seconds clips, which, you know, if Mm. you sit down in a screening room and you watch. And what was fascinating, which I think is the case with uh, one second, it does actually work as a narrative. You actually can keep up with what's going on. Mm. Uh, And I think with with, um, our use of the internet, we can now cope with the one second information. But literally, this guy was working then he had an injury running i think and, and so you could see him to recover then he went running again but he was wasn't well enough so he got himself hurt a second so you had all this emotion uh, around this character who was just recording five seconds of that of his life per day and then screening it so if you think one second so literally in this in a space of maybe five to six minutes you could summarize the entire year that could make for a wonderful yearly roundup for a business as well couldn't it
0: absolutely yeah i mean businesses you know if they showcase their products showcase their staff the experience their locations I think it's a really interesting idea and I, I'm I'm sort of a little bit um, upset that I've never really <laughs> embraced it before because I have been aware of it uh, I just haven't actually downloaded it and given it a try. Superb. So a lot of these apps and Uh, platforms that we rely on today wouldn't be possible without endeavours from the past so it's time to fire up the flux capacitor set the controls of the TARDIS we're going to head back in time for this week in
1: history and in 1877 the all england croquet and lawn tennis club begins its first lawn tennis tournament at wimbledon then an outer suburb of london
0: In 1936, several US patents were issued for the Phillips head screw and the screwdriver to its inventor,
1: Henry F. Phillips. Well, in 1947, the Roswell Army Airfield, RAAF, issued a press release stating that personnel had indeed recovered a crashed flying disc from a ranch near Roswell.
0: Goodness gracious, in 1960, President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev trade verbal threats over the future of Cuba. In
1: 1977, Voyager 2 passed by Jupiter nearly two years after its launch. It will become the only spacecraft to study all four of the solar system's giants before entering interstellar space in ni- 2018. In
0: 1985, the Coca-Cola company makes one of the worst decisions in marketing history when it ch- decides to change its original formula and introduces a new Coke.
1: And in 2007, the seven wonders of the modern world are announced. Roger, they are the Great Wall of China, Georgian's ancient rock city Petra, Brazil's statue of Christ's Redeemer, Machu Picchu in Peru, Mexico, Chichen Itza Pyramid, and the Colosseum in Rome. Finally, India's Taj Mahal.
0: And in 2009, after more than five years in beta, Gmail finally gets out of beta. <laughs> well, would you... do you agree with the seven wonders of the modern world or would you have included anything else in there? I mean, should the golden ribbon from Edinburgh replace one of the seven wonders of the modern world that you've just read out?
1: Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I... I don't find them as exciting. I mean, they are, you know, they're part of history, particularly when you move into South America. But I find the wonders of the natural world far more exciting and to kind of gasp. But, yeah, um, I think it's interesting because that was a position in 2007. Will the list change in 20 years' time, 40 years' time, where things that are deemed to be more current are going to become more historical?
0: And indeed, I'm thinking about the Roswell thing. <laughs> now, whether there was a real flying saucer involved in this or not, whatever you might say and whatever your beliefs might be in however many conspiracy theories you've read, you can't argue that this event, whatever it was, has caught co- has created so much content over the years from films, TV series, conspiracy mm. theories, articles. So just that one press release effectively started a
1: chain reaction of content creation. Talk about rocking the pond. Uh, And do you think that for the press release, they use the storytelling technique that we reviewed in content spotlights?
0: Wow, there's a very good question there. (laughs) And and of course, I wasn't born in in 1960, but I still remember my parents talking about the... Cuban Missile Crisis and the fact that we came so close almost to nuclear Armageddon didn't we in in 1960 and uh, I I, I grew up um, late 70s early 80s and and there was still quite a lot of nuclear fear Mm. around about that time and I always remember those adverts you know if you hear the air attack warning you and your family must take cover and uh, I
1: remember as a child being absolutely traumatised by the thought of nuclear war. I was the same. I mean, France, we lived in Paris at the time, because the Cold War went on for a very long time, for five years, and listeners who are perhaps from a younger age, younger generation, you may not appreciate because verbal threats now are so commonplace. But back then, this was serious stuff. And even on French TV, they would tell us, well, if this happens, do this and, and whatever. And this was only, give or take, you know, 15 to 10 years after the Second World War. So there was also a whole generation of people who have, have gone through that war and they didn't want to go back to it, particularly with the nuclear threats.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I just I just, have, still, still can remember Having nightmares as a child, mm. so Coca-Cola. Interestingly enough, Pascal, when I was younger, I was a Coca-Cola fiend. Um, my 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 parents actually used to get crates of. Coke delivered because we used to drink so much of it. And I can even remember when I was when I started working, um, there was a little trolley lady came around every day selling sweets and, and snacks. And I would get a can of Diet Coke in the morning and a can of Diet Coke in the afternoon. And then, and it's probably coming up to about 10 years, I was in Spain. Uh, we were in Mallorca one summer. I decided to stop drinking Coca-Cola when I came back from that holiday. And I haven't had a can of Coke, in nearly a decade. And I'm sure I've I've benefited from not drinking it. But I don't think that I ever tried the new version of Coke before they effectively re- re-established the old version. Or if I did, I didn't like it, and I kept drinking Coke Classic, which is what they called the old version for a while.
1: Yeah, I didn't like the new Coke. Like you, I I was almost brought up on on the original one. Interestingly, for me, memory of of drinking Coke was um, given to me whilst I was in hospital. So when I was much younger, I was age six, um, I had cancer and went through the treatment. And when he would give you chemotherapy, you just felt so unwell that actually to perk you up, they would give you a glass of flat Coke. Mm-hmm. And that sugar boost and I think everything else, all the nasty stuff that is in it, made me feel so much better that I've always associated, <laughs> which actually is how it began. If you remember the, the history of Coke, it began as a remedy, you know, it yes. was d- based on that. So for me, Coke was always, you drink if you're not well, and guess what? If I have a bit of a down day, if uh, my hay fever is really, you know, kicking my friend's butt, then a glass of Coke, you know, which I have. I, mean, I have the glass bottles, i very traditional in the, um, in the fridge.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, it was a re- remedy. It was the early Aid, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, oh, once again, great stories from history. And again, a lot of everything that we do today is shaped by these pioneers and these stories from the past. So let's move on now, Pascal, and celebrate the work of some content creators from in and around our networks. Shall we move on to creator shout outs? In this part of the show, Pascal and I celebrate the work of content creators, mainly from inside our network, sometimes from outside. So Pascal, who is in your sights
1: this week? So I want to actually celebrate the work of a group of people led by Andrew Wilson and Lindsay Morrison and the team at People Power. People Power is more than just an event although that's taking place very soon this year. It's literally a movement around supporting people who want to be more than thinking forward-thinking leaders. They work on themes like innovation, well-being, team building, um, and so on and so forth. And over the last few years, they have amassed an incredible uh, resources which you have on their official website, link in the um, in the show notes. And in this blog, you're going to find interviews, you're going to find articles around Everything you would want to explore and reflect on as part of being a successful and really inspiring team leader, and I think with regard to our earlier comment from Content Spotlights and more, Roger, the last 12 months, if not beyond, have been challenging for not just individuals in general, but also for team leaders. And the good ones have risen to the occasion, would you want to say? So. I just wanted to kind of give um, Andrew and Lindsay and the team a shout out for the work that goes on behind the scenes, not just for the events, although they are brilliant, but also for gathering the information before events, during events, and and after. So you'll have articles and videos in you know, on subjects like colleagues as customers, taking a marketing mindset to create an impactful employee experience, which is, I think is spectacular. Why top coaches are using emotional intelligence and why you should too personalizing, performance management, and so on and so forth. Just very practical, easy to follow interviews, videos, and articles that just help you as a team leader feel perhaps less isolated at this moment in time, but also inspired to always do the right thing for your people.
0: It's really good. And and actually thinking back to the content spotlight I did today about the future of working. You know, this whole thing, this people-centred thinking has got to be the way forward. And hopefully thinking uh, some of the issues that these guys um, uh, talk about on their blogs and their video series, it's interlinked, isn't it, to all this debate we're having about the future of work. So really interested in that. And uh, I shall give it a look. Uh, Let me shout out Mr. Mark Masters this week. Do you know Mark? I do not. I don't think so. No. Mark Masters runs a, uh, it was a conference, it's called You Are The Media, uh, quite a big marketing conference based in Bournemouth. Um, and Bournemouth Bournemouth was the city I had my very first ever job when I uh, left university, just as a bit of trivia. And Mark's company, You Are The Media, has quite a big reputation on the UK marketing conference circuit. It was certainly up there with Youpreneur and the Content Marketing Academy when it was around. Now, of course, Mark has been hit like everybody else has been hit by the pandemic and hasn't been able to run any events since. He's done some virtual lunchtime uh, spots over, over Zoom, but obviously, like all of us, he's not been able to run an in-person event. And yesterday, Mark ran an in-person event for the first time in 16 months the ur the media return to <laughs> to uh, the uh, event circuit now i was privileged to be involved in this not ne- not as a speaker per se what he did is he, he invited a few people to just turn up virtually because this was a in-person and virtual hybrid event now i don't i know that you're not massive keen on the word hybrid but he absolutely pulled this off, Pascal. Uh, He invited a number of us from around the country just to pop on for five minutes each just to say a couple of things about what we've been doing during the um, lockdown and uh, and give a marketing tip and that sort of thing. But he had a theatre booked out in Bournemouth so there were real people sat in that in that theatre, and I spotted John Asperian in the actual audience. I could see him sat there, so that was one person I recognised. Matt Desmier was there, who's also been a creator shout out on the show, and then he had the world's biggest Zoom screen, effectively <laughs> in this theatre, and he invited people like myself and others. Orr was in there as well, appearing on this screen, and. Actually, Pascal, he pulled it off, and I genuinely felt as if I was at a live event, even though I was sat exactly where I am now, sitting in front of my computer screen. Mark's energy on the stage with his microphone was absolutely intense. You know, he was ebullient, he was a bit shouty, and so enthusiastic. And he he also had John Burkhart there as well, who's quite a a famous... uh, conference speaker who does weird things like drinking games on stage and stuff like that and there I was and I'm thinking wow this is this is actually working he's pulled this off it was an absolutely genuine in-person and virtual event and I think that given the feedback that he's had and this was only yesterday by the way he's actually going to do it again it's going to form the staple of his events going forward so that's the first example I've come across of a genuine
1: hybrid in-person and virtual event Super. Well, to be honest with you, I feel like I've missed something exceptional. So uh, do let me know for the for the next one, and we'll, we'll go together.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the next one's going to be in September, and I mm-hmm. believe the guest is Joe Pelluzzi, who is a, quite a famous content marketer. So we'll keep you up to date on when that's going to be. So, Pascal, we finally reached the most important part of the show. <laughs> is it the most important part of the show? Well, it's often the most memorable, and the most enjoyable part of the show. It's time for Film Marketing. Way back in 2008, Cloverfield was released, and it was a pretty big blockbuster film, found footage uh, blockbuster film, all about an alien invasion. And that's not the film we're going to be talking about in film marketing today. We are going to be talking about the sequel to Cloverfield but actually the sequel which was called 10 Cloverfield Lane was a sequel that nobody really ever heard was coming and in some respects nobody really expected it and maybe that was part of the appeal. What do you think?
1: Yeah I mean I think uh, that was a very daring thing to do so to begin with You've got to applaud the creators for keeping it a secret for nearly two years because production started in 2014, was finished in 2014, then this movie, as we're going to hear in a moment, was released in March 2016. So what happened in 2015? Well, we know that the production company, Bad Robot, with J.J. Abrams at the helm with his co-founder, maybe was a little busy with this thing called The Force Awakens.
0: No, you're absolutely right, Pascal. You couldn't let 10 Cloverfield Lane get in the way of a good Star Wars movie, could you?
1: No, absolutely. So, I mean... You, I've seen Cloverfield. I went to the cinema, but there was a big build-up, and I was so excited. And the movie surprised us greatly because the, the marketing campaign 2008 kept so much uh, as a secret. You know, you, even though you watched a trailer, even though you went online to glean more information, that the movie surprised greatly. And and the same is true for this one. But did you remember seeing Ten Cloverfield at the movies, or did you wait for the DVD Blu-ray release?
0: We waited for the Blu-ray release, and I, I'm not sure how I feel about this film, Pascal, because it, it felt to me at the time as if I'd been conned a bit. <laughs> uh, I, I was just expecting a proper sequel, you know, with monsters, and, and the original film was, was um, you know, handheld footage-type found film, uh, and, and and really quite up Fast and exciting with lots of jump cutting. This film, it's, it just felt to me as if they'd taken a different story about a creepy guy who kidnaps a girl and hides her in a um, nuclear fallout shelter and... Um, and they've added this sort of Cloverfield bit on to capitalise on the original film, which is probably correct, actually. It's probably what they did. Uh, so I, I just felt a little bit short. I'm not saying it's not a good film. It's it's an incredibly good film. And, you know, it's tense. It's exciting. it's, It's creepy as well. And, you know, there's real jeopardy involved. But, you know, we're saying that it was a sequel that nobody was expecting. I just still wonder whether it's genuine
1: genuinely a real sequel or not well indeed the film directors producers jj Brahms, never confirmed nor denied that it was a sequel keeping obviously the word of mouth marketing going, is it or is it not? And eventually during the interview, I think he used the term, well, 10 Cloverfield Lane is like a blood relative to Cloverfield. It's not the sequel, but part of the same same universe and obviously setting up a, a franchise. I mean, for me, I went to the movies and, and I was so taken by the experience of three people trapped in an underground bunker. A... John Goodman, who was truly frightening. I mean, the man, which uh, really, who I know mostly for comedy, was so sinister as the unhinged kind of uh, preppy, I think they called on their preppers. Mm. And obviously, you had the actress, Mary Elizabeth uh, Winstead, who plays Michelle, who gets a lot of his attention. And we have the third character, um, Emmett, who we learned through the story has helped him build build the, the bunker, but how to fight his way inside the bunker. And, and the whole story is around John Goodman, police Howard saying, you can't go out because it's either a chemical attack on the Russians or something worth from outer space, and you can't go out. Is he telling the truth, or is he a company psychopath who just won company whilst he's chosen to lock himself into a bunker for no good reasons?
0: Yeah, no, and, and from a psychological point of view, it's quite painful, isn't it, to, to actually see how it how it progresses and the, the sort of levels of tension rise. I mean, the standout moment for me was when... Um, Michelle effectively creates a chemical suit mm. and a gas mask so you know she wants to escape and there's a sequence where she effectively inadvertently sets fire to the bunker and, and you know you're underground you're trapped underground and the only way out is up through a, a, a air vent and that sequence as she's trying to get out and you know that the it's going to either burn the whole thing inside out or explode that part from when she sets the fire inadvertently to getting out and being trying and, and John Goodman trying to stop her of, as well. It's so tense. You
1: really are on the edge of your seat. For me, the, the one standout is the very first time John Goodman loses his temper. Mm-hmm. So they, maybe they're eating at the table. And mm-hmm. I think perhaps of sheer boredom, uh, Michelle and Emmett are a bit playful, a bit cheeky, maybe take the mick out of him a bit. Yeah. And they go too far and he yeah. loses it. Yeah. And my God, the performance. And also because John Goodman is such a tall, large guy, you know, his yeah. stature. He just towers those two and loses it. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And they're stuck with him in this bunker. <laughs> yeah,
0: Absolutely, I mean, I like John Goodman a lot. You know, he's, he's he was in one of my favourite films of all time, which is called Sea of Love, and which yeah. was a was a cop drama. Uh, he, he's you know he can play comedy, he can play sinister. And um, I'm not sure what I thought about the ending again, Pascal, because obviously she she does escape from the bunker, and the probably the last five to ten minutes of the film that's when it becomes genuine clover because then we have aliens chasing her across the fields and we have spaceships um, trying to lift her up and take the car up into the uh, into the spaceship so um, I, I, it still just felt to me as if it was a bit tagged on at the end
1: yeah and, and I think it's because also we spend let's say an hour and 20 minutes inside the bunker and suddenly we're out, mm-hmm. and and you've got, it's almost like this overwhelming sense of of space information, and then the the, the alien. Um, I didn't mind so much, and the, I think the reason why the ending worked okay, although I do agree with your point, is because at the very end, she's she's in the car, the radio is playing, and they talk about essentially most of the u.s being invaded by those creatures Mm. and they're asking for help and she chooses because i think she has some um, knowledge around medical background she chooses to go to a city that needs her help and Mm. i feel it opens up to potentially potentially more but in terms of the um the marketing, just to give us a quick link into that. Remember, we and I said, and there was no forewarning, the movie was released in, in in March 2016, but the marketing started in January 2016. This is mm. a two-month campaign, Roger. Mm. And I can't wait to explore with you the elements to say, how do you make a two-month campaign, which is incredibly short, how do you make it work?
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they obviously had the usual um, standards. There was a quite effective poster actually i i love the idea of how they created the great big l mm. of the word lane almost implying down the down the poster that the fact that they were in this nuclear fallout bunker i think that was very very clever and and again the trailers focused in on you know that what you've already said don't go out there something's coming uh, they were very effective but this particular campaign wasn't traditional at all beyond the poster beyond the trailer they did something totally different and it was this vir- viral campaign that uh, you you mentioned to before and of course the original cloverfield film had a uh, an earlier sort of internet savvy um campaign but this one they absolutely nailed it
1: absolutely and you know the term viral marketing is used a lot in mm. the world of marketing. And often is just this aspiration of creating content that others are going to share on. But actually in the case of uh, this film, and of course I suspect with a strong influence from J.J. Abrams, he brought in some element of gamification, which I think came, yeah. must come from his work on Lost, where there was a lot of things you could do beyond yes. watching the movie to go online and find information about the airline and find information about the different characters. And of course Cloverfield, So we begin with uh, a discovery by really big fans of the genre that you could order the same um, kind of fizzy drink as the characters you could see on the trailer. So you've got some eagle eyed fans who discover a real business where you can order the swamp pop soda that was featured in the film and three things happen depending on who you were so if you were lucky enough to be some of the first few two orders not only did you get the soda and you can show off on lines but you also got some pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that the characters were playing in the movie yep. led into the, to the legend that maybe that's why they can't finish the puzzle. Others got a, the sign saying, terribly sorry, due to unfortunate circumstances on the eastern seaboard, su- mm-hmm. suggesting the monsters, we can't order, um, you can't, we can't deliver it to you. And then others say, well, there's only one or two left and the price is $4,813 which so happens to be the number that Howard played by John Goodman punches into the jukebox to play the song I Think We're All On Now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and they also had this whole sort of um – you you had to go out and find more information, didn't didn't you? It's almost mm-hmm. like a it's like a treasure hunt. You, you're looking that's for right. discovering the letters. Now the, the Howard that, that that's the uh, creepy character. He has a daughter called Megan, who we never actually meet in the in the in the show. And and the the implication is that he did something horrible to his daughter Megan, but you You actually go out there and you can find letters that he had written to his daughter, expecting her to come back, and then details of the bunker he was building. And you it almost like you could get involved in his in this character's life. Um, and I imagine that appealed to quite a lot of people who just love putting clues together and there's quite a lot of games you can get for iPhones and, and, and Androids these days which are almost these these clue based games where you have to piece together like escape rooms on, on phones I guess and that's like this isn't it you're just finding the information yeah. to piece together the story before you've even seen the film.
1: I love the way you use the term treasure hunt because that's how it mm. feels and I, I, I'm absolutely convinced uh, it means that like, like your and I because JJ Abrams is, is of our age group he will have played RPGs he will have played yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and more to come up with because that's how you do you know you, you have um, players around the table and you dish out you know type messages and you dish out maps and so on people went as far as going on to websites and using the mouse cursor highlighting parts of the website to see whether there was a hidden hyperlink where if the website was in white maybe the text was in white and you can uh, discover yeah. things like this but um, the one that blew my mind in terms of just the, the prep but also the discovery was to find that at the movies depending which a um chain you went to they had five different trailers for the movie yeah each with a final frame being different. So you literally have to go online and first frame to the last frame. The last frame would reveal a hand drawing, a kind of some old-fashioned hand drawings, but also some numbers and some clever so-and-so managed to pull the numbers together, being the coordinates to somewhere in the US where you could go and someone went. It's on YouTube. They went into the coordinates, they dug the ground, and they found a box left allegedly by the character Howard. Oh, that's just Classic, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the fact that they did that um,
0: and took the chance, I mean, that is quite a complicated um, load of information you've got to piece together to find those coordinates. The fact that they expected somebody, some incredible geek to do that, it's the sort of thing you and I would have done, isn't it? Uh, to actually go and dig that box up. I mean, fabul-
1: fabulous, fabulous. And why is it viral? Because then you end up with thousands upon thousands of people around the world, and indeed, you know, also in Europe, where the movie did very well, discussing and getting excited about those clues. And people organize themselves in forums, and they go on fandom, they go on Reddit, they go on Facebook, they go on Twitter, and they talk about the marketing of the movie a lot more than they talk about the movie because the movie has the trailers you said and they did do enough in terms of advertising which was also a first in 2006 and spent so much money online as opposed to on TV and billboards and so on. But the one thing that has, has stayed from the 2008 campaign, Roger, was, of course, the reference to the Tag Ruato company. Mm. Now, this is the infamous Japanese deep sea drilling companies that we think may be responsible for the appearance of the monster in the very first one. Mm. And you could, at the time, they've, the website's still live, but there is a holding message. You could, at the time go on this official website and discover more clues about Howard the fact that he's worked for the company which maybe suggests he knew more than he let on in the movie and within that you could discover more about him and his daughter and the messages they left on each other almost like hackers you know they were hidden away on websites and back to this treasure hunt uh, I think it's absolutely amazing and the very final clue before the movie was released was interesting because This was played almost real time, Roger. Where because the movie being released in March two thousand and sixteen, well, everything stops in March two thousand and sixteen, suggesting that for those who've seen the film, Howard obviously comes to you know a pretty painful end, and there is no more messages from him. But the last clue took you to a youth hostel in Chicago, where you could ring a number and hear more from Howard.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think? I mean, it's such an immersive campaign incredibly uh, detailed and obviously appealing to the geek uh, fraternity. And I I can't imagine your mainstream cinema goer, you know, a family cinema goer doing all of this. So it was definitely aimed at, you know, people like us. But do you think that because it was so immersive, and because it sucked you so much into the Cloverfield universe, do you think there was a lot of people who were disappointed when, like myself, they just felt actually the Co- Cloverfield bit was tagged onto the end of a, uh, just a film about a creepy guy in a nuclear bunker?
1: Possibly. Um, I mean, to your point, they had to be careful not to alienate or simply, uh, as we discussed literally last week about yesterday, where people missed the campaign altogether, very short, two months. So they did go ahead with a more uh, pedestrian and straight-off-the-mill trailer for TV and the Super Bowl ads. So literally, if you watch trailer number three, the third one, it gives everything away. I mean, literally, it suggests uh, you even get to hear the rumble, the monster, and the shadow yeah. uh, looming at the end. So I think for me, it's probably the um, less exciting trailer. I think the, the first two that they created for the campaign were very good. But you're right, they probably realized hang on a minute, you know, this is getting a bit too clever, maybe, or a bit too elitist. So let's do something which is more mainstream. And um, that's when the TV uh, and, and online adverts of a very, very kind of, um, yeah, common trailer where there's a proper beginning, middle and end and you literally discover even through that trailer that Michelle escapes. You don't know what happens to her, but she escapes and, and is facing up to one of, of the monsters. So they probably had to do that very quickly at the end.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're absolutely right. It You know, when she makes the decision to drive towards Houston, you almost think, yep, there could have been another film about Michelle after that. And of course, we haven't had it yet, and maybe we never will. So re- this this was an interesting one this week, Pascal, because I don't think we've really come across a campaign like this before, a real detailed, almost painstakingly detailed viral marketing campaign appealing to the geeks out there who really love piecing together these bits of information. But at the same time, running a parallel campaign which is more mainstream, posters, trailers, that sort of thing. So I think this is, whilst the film itself might not have lived up to the hype, I think the marketing campaign certainly did.
1: And it's a great addition to film marketing because what you're not trying to do although we don't choose the movies for the campaign which is movies because we like them or we think something to say we do try and make sure that we extract elements of the campaign that can be a source of inspiration for all of you and listeners and they can take that away into the world of business and entertainment no matter your profession and i am so pleased because this being number 48 i would say i would agree with you this is the first proper viral campaign that we've discussed.
0: Let's hope we're going to experience many more of these in the years to come. So Pascal, once again fantastic to share some time with you here on the screen and here in the audio studio, Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast episode 48. Thank you everyone for watching the show. Thank you everyone who listened to the show as always let us know what you think about two geeks in the marketing podcast give us some feedback on the youtube channel look up look for us on twitter we're both there and tell us which films you'd like us to talk about tell us which films you want us to talk about from the po- point of view that they're really good films but also from the point of view of the marketing campaigns until the next episode please All of you go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni.